Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. All right, and there we are, Brian. Today, uh, we have Brian Wright. Brian is the author of the the new book that was just released yesterday, The New York Mets, All-Time All-Stars. Um, I stayed up all last night reading it. It's awesome. So everybody go out there and get it. We'll put the links up for you. Um, it was released from Lions Press, features a full roster of players, a, a manager, coaches, and front office. He also wrote Mets and Tens, Best and Worst of Amazing History, examining the team's highs and lows through a series of top 10 lists. And you were the managing editor for Met Retrospectives, a publication from, for the, from the Society of American Baseball Research, Sabre which chronicles the greatest games in franchise history. Um, you've also contributed to other Sabre books, including the most memorable moments in the history of the San Diego Padres, Wrigley Field, and Old Comiskey Park. And you currently reside in Washington, D.C., as we just talked about. So welcome. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. Great to be on. So anybody who knows me knows I'm a huge Mets fan. Um, plus, I love doing podcasts. So when I saw your book was coming out, I think I saw it on Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. You're pretty active on Twitter. Yeah. Um, it's, I had to talk to you. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. I love hearing from, uh, hearing from fans, hearing from voracious readers like yourself, by the way, you, you read the book a lot faster than I could possibly read it. Well, yes. Well, I do want to go back through it. I, I, I kind of, the way I read books is fast. So I'll read them two, three, four times to, to digest everything. Um, how did you get involved in, in writing about baseball? Uh, it's, you know, I have, uh, like, as you might expect, I've always, you know, had a, had a lifelong obsession with it, uh, specifically with the Mets since I was about five years old. Um, had always been interested in in the history of baseball uh, around since then, and uh, had, you know, my dad had all these old books, uh, old videos, specifically of the Mets, and it kind of carried on from there. I would go to, you know, in high school, I would go to journalism uh, class and worked on the student newspaper, and then in college, worked on was a communication major and worked on the student newspaper. Uh, and even as I kind of went into my career, which wasn't totally sports related, I always wanted to um, still keep my toe in the water, so to speak, and, and write in sports. And I've written for several websites and, and you had mentioned other things that I had done um, you know, with Sabre. And, and, and I always wanted to kind of have some kind of involvement in doing sports, even if it might not be a career. Um, so as I was writing for some publications, I did a lot of, you know, list writing and kind of, you know, top 10 lists. And that's what partially inspired me to do that Mets and Tens book uh, with uh, Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. Uh, so that was, that kind of was the foundation uh, for starting that book, which came out about two years ago. And uh, my involvement with Saber allowed me to kind of uh, oversee that Metrospectives book. And, uh, you know, Carried on from there, uh, uh, you know, and the editor, uh, uh, main acquisition editor at Lions Press saw uh, specifically Mets and Tens, wanted to see if I would be interested in doing this book uh, of the all-time All-Stars. They've also done uh, books on the Yankees, which came out last August, and the Pirates, which also came out yesterday. Uh, so I was happy happy to do it. It, it was, uh, was a, um, a tough process because it was uh, writing the book in a short period of time. I think, you know, I would rather have had a few more months, but... Uh, to do it in about less than a year was uh, a lot of work, but it was a subject matter that I was uh, 
fully aware of. I think it had been had it been another team, it would not take me. Uh, it would it, I wouldn't have done it that quickly. When you wrote your first book, anybody who's listening out there who who wants to write a book, that's not just an easy task. When you just wake up one day and you want to write a book, mm-hmm. could you ex- could you explain that process to everybody? Yeah, uh, it's uh, it requires a lot of patience and diligence. Um, when when people ask me if like, oh, you must be such a great writer, and I hear I'm trying to remember what it is, and I've said this in other interviews. I was watching a uh, uh, those masterclass things you get them, you know, they spam your Facebook and your social media. I was watching one of them, and I believe it was Margaret Atwood who did uh, Handmaid's Tale. I think it was her. <laughs> I don't want to totally uh, say it was her, but she said something. It was definitely a woman said something to the effect of, I'm not a great writer. I'm a great rewriter. And I would say I'm not a good writer. I think I'm good, a good rewriter. What I mean by that is my my advice to anyone who wants to do a book or wants to write something long form is to have a long-term plan and to make sure that plan includes writing every day if you can whether it's writing 500 words, 1,000 words. If you don't have a lot of time, write 200 words. Just write something down. Um, you know, It doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to have your perfect sentence, your perfect paragraph right away. I am certainly an example of that. I you know, write something down. I have an idea. I say, you know, if it's the Mike Piazza chapter, I want to write about, hey, how he, you know, the trade that brought him to New York. That's how I want to intro it. And I, I put something down. And I eventually look at it again and go, it stinks. I got to correct it. And then I might look at it later and say, well, I got to correct it again. Um, so it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of repetition. As I said, writing, trying to write every day and making sure you have that long-term plan and sticking to that plan. Probably the most difficult part is sticking to that plan because if you skip a day, then it's a week, then it's a month. And then you're, you know, you, you miss the deadline that the publisher gives you. So uh, yeah, my main piece of advice is to write every day and to not always search for that perfect sentence or paragraph because you're never going to find it the first time. And, and even when the book is written, so your job's not done. Like today, you're um, you're doing interviews, and I saw you on a couple of other podcasts. And uh, what else are you required to do after after you write that book, or, or is yeah, uh, well, publishers, um, as many people might know, they're you know not exactly you know lucrative. So the resources they may have for a writer to promote their book um, is a little bit limited. And I think that's something that I have understood, especially after the first book. Um, And so a lot is required of you to promote your own book. And I, I happily take that on because, you know, I like to be in control of a lot of things. Um, So although it's very, it's, it's difficult and, but it's also, there's also a lot of fun in it. There's a lot of fun in people saying, Hey, I really, you know, like you, like I read the book and Hey, I really like, you know, we can converse about it and people can say, hey, you know, maybe, oh, this position, I thought this should have been different. Uh, but hey, I really liked it. That's I enjoy that because I don't expect what I write to be agreed upon by everyone. That's <laughs> otherwise it'd be a really boring book. Um, so, yeah, I enjoy the promotional part of it. Uh, it's 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 tough. It's a little bit uh, stressful. Sometimes you, you, you arrange interviews and you realize you just kind of put two on top of each other and uh, it's hard to be kind of a, a writer and also a scheduler at the same time. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, it, I guess this is the most enjoyable part is talking about your work and, and seeing how many people uh, want to talk about it with you. Cool. And we're at a great time of the year. So the mm-hmm. Mets are in spring training. Baseball's about to start. Um, the weather still stinks, but um, this this gives hope to all Mets fans every mm-hmm. every spring. So, and I bring that up. So, you know, I'm a Mets fan. You're a Mets fan. Uh, we we must be you know gluttons for punishment. Um, if you're not a Mets fan, you don't really understand why people are so passionate about them. Well, why why the Mets for you? Uh, pretty easy for me. My dad was a Mets fan uh, growing up. He's been a Mets fan since 1962, and all, although his fandom isn't as strong as it was uh, since you know in his you know later years, uh, I think I feel like I've taken that on and probably taken it to the nth degree uh, in terms of my obsession. Anyone who's a friend of mine knows pretty much if they want to describe me, that's usually the first word they, they would use to describe me would be like, Oh, Mets fan. Um, that's so it's pretty easy to, just to, to kind of point me out and uh, to, to describe me. So uh, I went to my first game when I was about five years old in 1992 
And it pretty much was an obsession from there on out. I, you know, even though I live in Washington, D.C., uh, I try to go up to City Field uh, whenever I can. And, of course, when the uh, Nationals are here, I, I'll watch uh, the Mets as well. And, of course, I try to watch every game on MLB TV uh, through SNY. So, um, it, yeah, it's it's a, a, a family heirloom, so to speak, passed down from, I think, you know, my grandfather was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan, passed on, and then became a Mets fan when they started to exist. Uh, my dad took them on from the start, and then he passed it on to me. So I don't. Hopefully that that never changes uh, as you know <laughs> through our, our family history. I, I, I've never considered it, but uh, it gets tough sometimes. But I, you know, I, I have, I'm hopeful this year. I think it, we have a good team going. So let's jump into the book. Um, let's start right with pitching. So the mm-hmm. Mets have had really strong pitching over the years, um, but I guess the the top two. I mean, you, you can't really argue with your choices there. Could you talk about uh, Tom Seaver and Jacob DeGrom? Yeah, no, um, those it's, it's interesting now, you know, Tom Seaver is the, the, he's, you know, he's called the franchise for a reason and he'll be the franchise as long as there is a Mets franchise. Um, no one can surpass his impact on, on the Mets. I mean, obviously the statistics are fantastic. He leads pretty much in every category, but it's interesting to see uh, how Jacob DeGrom is making a case Statistically, uh, I don't think, he, you know, he can never uh, uh, reach Tom Seaver's impact in terms of changing the attitude or changing the perception of, of a team. Because when Tom Seaver came along in 1967, I mean, the Mets were a doormat and Tom Seaver had the attitude that they weren't going to be that. And he showed it on the mound. He showed it off the field. Um, and of course, the Mets became world champions two days later, two years later. And, you know, the rest is history of. Uh, Jacob DeGrom, through his first six years, compared to Tom Seaver's first six years, uh, if you look at statistics that kind of even out the time period, because it's so hard uh, to compare compare eras because of Seaver's workload, uh, you know, and of uh, you know how many, just the way baseball is uh, in the night was in the 1960s compared to how it is today. Um, if you look at stats like ERA plus. And whip specifically, Jacob Dragram is slightly better through six seasons. Now, of course, that's only six seasons. Uh, we still have a ways to go um, in Jacob Dragram's career. Hopefully, and hopefully, all with the Mets. Uh, but it's really it's fascinating because I was I was doing I put up a tweet uh, kind of last week to kind of honor Tom Seaver because he's on the cover, and I said, well, I just want to do a little comparison and see how you know Jacob Dragram compares uh, with Tom Seaver, obviously. No Met has ever won back-to-back Cy Young, so Jake kind of in a class by himself in that regard. Uh, but I was fascinated that through first, the first six seasons um, of Jake's career, he's a little bit better in terms of those stats. Um, still, again, not going to match on Seaver. It's you know it's a, uh, a fruitless effort or a fruitless thing to ask of uh, Jacob Durham to try to do that because he can't. But um, it's really remarkable to see that that how far Jacob Durham has come. Uh, and that, you know, maybe he has another Cy Young award in him and he would match Seaver with three. Uh, you know, even if that happens, it's still, it's an interesting argument. But Seaver, again, impact uh, resonates so much in terms of how I feel uh, a player is regarded in, in their history. And you think about the Mets, you think of Tom Seaver. Um, mm-hmm. Now, Jacob DeGrom came out of, I don't want to say virtually uh, nowhere, um, but he wasn't as heralded as I, I, Noah Syndergaard or, or Zach Wheeler or, I mean, you go down the list, um, down years before. Jason Isringhausen, yeah. Bill Polstifer, I mean, all those guys. Um, so, I mean, how does anybody predict something like that? He just, he's oh. he's now one of, if not the best, one of the best pitchers in baseball. Yeah, no, you can't predict something like that because we've seen all these pitchers that get highly touted and, and uh, go up through the minor leagues and how, you know, the projections of how they're, how great they're going to be. And as you had pointed to, um, no, it's in, you know, that group uh, in 2014, you know, in the, the 2013, 2014, 2015 of all the great pitchers that were going to come up to the Mets. We talk about Matt Harvey, Zach Wheeler, Noah Syndergaard, Rafael Montero. Uh, that didn't work out too well. No one talked about Jacob DeGrom. Jacob DeGrom begins his uh, Mets career pretty modestly, a game against the Yankees, I believe in May of 2014. Um, I think he gave up one run and lost. So, you know, <laughs> it was a portent of things to come. Um, but, you know, goes on to win rookie of the year. 2015, he's an all-star, uh, really important in the 
World Series run. Uh, and then, of course, the back-to-back Cy Young season. So it's funny. Jacob deGrom was, was the – no one talked about him and among that group. And not only is the best – he's the best of that group. He's one of the best bets pitchers in history. Right after those first two. So I, I, I'd imagine you had you maybe had a tougher time right after that with, with Dwight Gooden and, and mm-hmm. John Matlack and Jerry Kuzman. Um, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, no, I mean, Dwight Gooden is an easy choice, uh, I thought. And um, Jerry Kuzman, of course, is an easy, easy choice. He'll get his number retired later this year. Um, it got a little bit tougher when you got to Ron Darling, uh, who, who was kind of the, uh, the, the, the Kuzman uh, to – Dwight Gooden's Tom Seaver, if you want to compare the, uh, those two eras. Um, John Matlack was kind of the third fiddle uh, behind uh, Seaver and Kuzman, and in some respects he was a little bit better than Kuzman. Uh, but he kind of gets forgotten because he was Jacob DeGrom before Jacob DeGrom. If you look at how little run support, I think I cited it in his intro, specifically in 1974, he got like no run support, uh, had, a, had a pretty average record, uh, his ERA was fantastic. Uh, never got a Cy Young consideration, um, but he he was a guy whose win total does not reflect how good he was uh, for the Mets. Of course, winning the 1972 Rookie of the Year, I mean, great year in '73, and then, as we talked about '74, uh, and overall had a pretty good uh, Mets career. And and this year will get inducted into the Mets Hall of Fame, and deservedly so. Um, but as you got down the line, I, and and one thing I made sure to do, and you alluded to this, is that the Mets have had uh, a lot of great pitchers, specifically starting pitchers. And one thing I got, uh, I made sure to do, and I got a little creative with the 30 man roster that I put out uh, was that I had seven starting pitchers. I, I didn't want to leave out very deserving pitchers. Uh, and we've had, they've had a greater despair. They've had a, many more great starting pitchers than relief pitchers. So I made sure to throw in uh, seven starting pitchers, three relief pitchers, uh, but even then, with seven starters, it was hard to leave a few people out. Um, the ones in the honorable mention, I was still debating whether I should put them on the team as opposed to the other pitchers. So uh, it's that's the that's the difficult part with picking this team because there are some positions in which players that got included uh, maybe aren't as good or impactful in Mets history as some of the pitchers I had to leave off. Who who did you leave off? Who who was just who did you agonize over? So the two pitchers that I, I agonized over were starters, and they were David Cohn and Sid Fernandez. Um, D- David Cohn obviously had a great uh, start to his Mets career. Uh, 1988, he was 20 and three, and was pretty much the ace of that staff just out of nowhere because I think he was a kind of a, a spot starter. He was kind of used in relief, and then he kind of had to go in an emergency. I think in May of '88, and went went on to that fantastic season. Uh, led the league in strikeouts, I believe, in 1991 uh, and had a 19 strikeout game. Um, but just it was just kind of it just it was just a little bit short of all the, of the seven pitchers I had. That's not no shame uh, on David mm-hmm. Cohn. He still was a great pitcher. And Sid Fernandez, um, you know, has the lowest ERA, I believe, in Shea Stadium history. Uh, put together some really good years, a lot of strikeouts. Um, he didn't always have quite the stamina uh, to last deep into games and that hurt him in the era he pitched if he was pitching today he might be an ace because mm-hmm. who goes six, who goes more than seven <laughs> ace today um but i tried to judge these players in of the era they were performing and kind of tried not to like say hey if i were to put a team together today who would i put because that's a slippery slope um so in that respect i i had to leave sid fernandez off again no shame in 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 how Sid Fernandez did, he was a great pitcher for the Mets. Was very important and probably the MVP of Game Seven of the '86 World Series, uh, coming in relief of Ron Darling and kind of stabilizing the uh, Red Sox offense. Uh, but again, he just he falls just a little bit short of making uh, the pitching uh, the pitch plus. Who 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 is not in the book that just didn't make the cut? At, at the pitcher position for you? Um, I mean, there were, uh, I, you know, when I put like the honorable mention together, I tried to kind of put different pitchers from different eras. So the honorable mentions are not like in, in the case of Conan Fernandez, there are people that ju- they are pitchers that just missed. Um, but I, you know, I trying to, for the sake of brevity, I didn't want to list like every pitcher that I was like, Oh, they are, they're certainly, they have their qualifications. Guys like uh, Johan Santana, uh, who, 
had the no hitter, uh, had a, a, a very good uh, 2008. I remember he had a great uh, second to last game of the season that kept the Mets in the playoff race. Um, and had a lot of great moments. Of course, injuries really uh, harmed his uh, Mets career. Um, maybe another guy like Billy Wagner, who was a, a mm. pretty good reliever, um, had some uh, tough moments in the 2006 playoffs, but overall uh, had had some uh, fine years as uh, as a closer. We've uh, made at least one All-Star game. So he was another pitcher that I just never put on there, but certainly would be a, a, a respectable, honorable mention. Okay. All right, let's move on to catcher. So um, obviously the, the Mets, you think of the Mets again, you think of Gary Carter. He mm-hmm. was just a, such a huge personality, um, you know, was in the spotlight all the time. Uh, you want to talk about the catcher position? Yeah, no, I uh, made sure to, you know, Gary Carter, definitely. Mike Piazza, definitely. But I made sure to put three catchers um, because I think Jerry Grody is deserving of, of being put on this team. Uh, if you look at his just kind of, you look at the box score, if you look at his baseball reference uh, entry uh, in terms of his hitting, it's never going to stand out. It's, it's It does not compare to Mike Piazza's power numbers. It doesn't compare to the RBIs that Gary Carter put up. Um, but the uh, importance that he had to to develop, mat- helping mature uh, and uh, kind of harden the pitching staff of 1969 uh, can't, can't be overstated. Uh, he was kind of rough around the edges, so to, uh, to say the least. Um, and he really got on uh, his pitching staff, but it, it worked to great effect. Um, and when Gil Hodges, uh, the manager of the 69 Mets, uh, built that team or kind of constructed that team. He will always emphasize strength of the middle when that comes to down to catcher and Jerry Grody, uh, the pitcher. And of course he had a lot of great ones, uh, shortstop, but with Bud Harrelson and center field, with Tommy Agee. Uh, and that was it defensively was so vital to the, the success of the 69 Mets, uh, both, you know, in limiting the opposition from scoring runs and Jerry Grody was the, Really, the heart uh, of that, uh, of you know, not only as I said, molding the pitching staff, but also making sure that runs weren't scored. So uh, I wanted to make sure that he would not go uh, unrecognized um, in terms of his importance. I think I mentioned one of the lines of the book, Johnny Bench, who was regarded as not only the greatest catcher of the '70s, but the greatest, probably the greatest, one of the greatest catchers of all time, who said that if Jerry Grody was a Cincinnati Red, he'd be a third baseman. Mm-hmm. Does does Todd Hundley uh, not get forgotten? But does he does, does he have a little tarnish on him because of the uh, the Mitchell report and the the chemical uh, use claims? Yes. He does, uh, but I think it's you know I think it's with as you're seeing with a lot of the steroid guys, I think the Barry Bonds and the Roger Clemens, you know, they may well get to the Hall of Fame one day. And as you know, personally, I I would say they deserve it, but I think they probably should get in and, you know, the steroid era should be recognized and put in proper perspective. Um, so in the case of Todd Hundley, he certainly has his place or had his place in Mets history. He, he, he had the most home runs in a single season tied with Carlos Beltran until Pete Alonso did it uh, just last year. Uh, and he, and, you know, surprising to many Mets fans, he has the most home runs of any Met in the 1990s. So he does have a place in Mets history. Um, I don't want to come off as saying a lot of people did it, but the steroid era we're going to have to put into perspective um, and and recognize that the steroid we can't really um, you know parse down who took steroids, who who had who was on performance enhancing drugs, and who wasn't. So to answer your question, yes, uh, but at the same time, um, you know he was he he was a, a great power hitter for the Mets in the 1990s, uh, and you can kind of put your own asterisk on it, if you will. And the other uh, the catcher that you mentioned, I'm glad you did, is John Stearns. Now, he was on some Mets teams that weren't very good, but if anybody who knows John Stearns knows he was, uh, you know, hard as nails. Um, yeah, yeah, no, he he kind of uh, supplanted uh, Jerry Grody at catcher. Um, and it, it, I believe in terms of war, his war is a little better. Uh, that being said, I, I had to put Grody over Stearns. Uh, Stearns, I think, made three, four, five all-star, maybe made four all-star games, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and as you said, those were for some pretty bad Mets teams, but he still still was deserving of those all-star selections. Was pretty fast, actually, for a catcher. I, 
I don't know exactly how many stolen bases he had, but more than most catchers would produce. Hmm. That's a great question. So in your book, there's a lot of stats. How do you, how do you personally keep track of, of all these stats? Um, you know, as you're writing a book, because people can real easily just go check all your, your, uh, your, your, your stats that you write down and be another, another editor for you. Yeah, no, I was uh, pretty much my own editor going through uh, the first time and, and writing uh, the manuscript with all those stats and having to then look back and make sure I did it correctly because uh, I, I, you know, some of the stats you can get right off uh, right off the bat on baseball reference and some I actually went a little deeper and said, hey, this guy had a, you know, 350 batting average from August 4th to September 30th or something like that. It kind of made my double checking a lot harder and made me go oh why did I you know go this deep because now it's just making me more work for me uh, but I kind of wanted to put uh, I kind of wanted to give a, a, a the proper lens to how impactful or how important these particular players were and I think uh, sometimes if you say hey this person was great down the stretch and here's an example of that because late in the season they they hit a certain uh, number or they got on base this often or they were so good uh, at throwing runners out maybe as far if you're talking about a catcher uh, or their ERA was this low if you're talking about a pitcher. So a lot of a lot of baseball reference. I will give them um, a lot of credit for helping me out. Uh, fan graphs. Uh, I also used uh, another site I used was ultimatemets.com, which is just if if Mets fans have not have not gone to it, they should because maybe they shouldn't go right now because you'll not get it. You won't get any work done. But it's <laughs> you can spend a lot of hours uh, on ultimatemets.com and have a lot of fun with it. Cool. All right. First base, I, I guess it really wasn't too much of a question. Keith Hernandez is, was your choice. Yeah. Uh, great, great fielder. I mean, he was my favorite, one of my favorite players at first base. I mean, if you want to emulate somebody, he was the guy to do it for defense. Um, was. What do you think of him? Yeah, I think uh, he, you know, he was not only important in terms of just the fielding, uh, won six of his 11 straight gold gloves with the Mets. Uh, the first uh, few were with the Cardinals. Um, and that trade from the Cardinals to the Mets is the best trade the Mets ever made. Uh, we all talk about how many bad trades the Mets have made. That was not only a good one, it was the best one. Uh, it changed the attitude of a franchise that was pretty dormant. Uh, and Hernandez was very important in, in reversing that attitude, uh, kind of being the leader in the clubhouse. Uh, but not only was his fielding important, uh, he was a great hitter, has the best at- batting average of any Met that's had at least 3,000 at bats. Um, but as I was just talking about, his leadership um, really just helped, you know, elevate the Mets from being a perennial basement feeder to a contender. So, from that, in that sense, I mean, Keith Hernandez is one of the most important players the Mets have ever had. What are, what are the Hall of Fame chances there? I mean, I, I would think he's very deserving. Um, yeah, I, I, I've, I'd always thought uh, that he wouldn't get in. I would have thought that a few years ago. And I don't like to be that kind of person that says, well, if that guy gets in, well, why isn't this person getting in? But the more I see who gets into the Hall of Fame, players that were very good, but I don't would not consider them Hall of Famers. And I would then start to think maybe Keith Hernandez would get more consideration. Um, I the, the comparison I make is to uh, Bill Mazeroski. Uh, Bill Mazeroski was probably the greatest building second baseman ever uh, and had, of course, the, the 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 unforgettable home run in 1960 to beat the Yankees. Keith Hernandez is the greatest fielding first baseman ever. Um, certainly a better bat, a better hitter than Bill Mazeroski was. Uh, and Keith Hernandez didn't you know, have that uh, ultimate postseason moment, but he had two very, very, very important hits in the World Series in Game 7s. When you talk about uh, 82 with the Cardinals, uh, I believe he broke high, or maybe it took the lead. I'm not really, I can't remember. Um, but it was an important hit. And then almost duplicating that with a hit in, for the Mets in Game 7 against the Red Sox. It was a 3 nothing game. Bases were loaded. He gets a hit to left center, drives in two. The Mets eventually tie the game, tie the game and of course they go on to an 8-5 win. So um, I I look at that and say maybe Keith Hernandez is a better shot than I would have believed a few years ago. Hmm. Hopefully. I always loved him. Uh, so the Mets have had some pretty good first basemen. So who are your other uh, considerations there and choices? 
There, yeah, there are a lot of people, a lot of first basemen to choose from. Um, I, I think the nominees you could say definitely are, are John Allrude, uh, Ed Greenpool, uh, Carlos Delgado. Uh, in the book, I mentioned Pete Alonso because I just thought it deserved to be thrown in there. And you can't, you know, no one can predict <laughs> what's going to happen two, three, four years from now. Uh, but Pete Alonso is on a trajectory that would certainly get him uh, on an all-time team, you know, maybe five years from now or or less, because it was such a remarkable season. Uh, not only what he did in the 53 home runs, but and he and he he had a knock on him that his defense was not very good. But I, I watched, uh, if not all, every game last year. I mean, his defense was pretty 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 above board. Yeah, no, it's it's very it's very good. Uh, I didn't see him at all as a liability. Um, let's go into second base. You picked again one of my my favorite players is Edgardo Alfonso, uh, yeah. who could just he could hit the heck out of that ball uh, and put it anywhere he wanted to, opposite field. Um, how was your selection at that position? Yeah, that was um, very easy for the starter uh, with Edgardo Alfonso. He's one of my favorites as well. Uh, clutch hitter. Uh, steady fielder. He at the beginning of his career, he kind of moved position to position. He started, I think, as a third baseman, then moved to second. I think they used him. They may have used him at shortstop, and eventually he settled on at second base, and that was a great spot for him. And um, if not for like the back injuries, I think he would have uh, he could have you know added to his his Mets legacy. Uh, but after him, it was a very interesting uh, choice. I went with two more. Um, and uh, in an earlier podcast, someone asked me, was there a player that I initially made a list and said, oh, that person's not going to make the team. And then eventually I realized, oh, I guess he is. That person's Daniel Murphy. And we talk about polarizing figures in Mets history. I, I don't know if he's the most polarizing, but he's he's uh, certainly up there. And I think his his time after the Mets uh, has really kind of added some uh, some interesting layers to his uh, to his Mets legacy. Um, but from whatever you want to say about his questionable fielding, his uh, base running, uh, very questionable as well. Um, not notwithstanding that you know great base running play he made in Game Five of the NLDS, uh, he was a very solid hitter and very consistent hitter. Um, got over thirty doubles pretty much every year that he was healthy, and uh, and of course what put him over the top was that 2015 postseason, which was unlike any other in baseball history. So he, that w- really was the tiebreaker and put him on the list. Uh, I looked at um, a few other players, and I normally don't use war as a tiebreaker, but I did it in this case, and that's what put Wally Backman on the team over Felix Mian. Uh, that was a tough selection, uh, but I think Wally Backman, not only just for the way that he um, did you know, at the plate and on the field, but again, kind of another attitude player that the 86 Mets kind of needed. Uh, he was kind of a tone setter uh, at the top of the order. So I don't think I, I, that should be certainly uh, rewarded in terms of uh, making a team. Felix Mion, uh, as far as 1973, was very important. And it was unfortunate because he had an injury that really cut his career short, uh, but was, uh, I believe, set the record in 1973 for the most hits in a single season. And he may have broken that two years later. So Felix Mion was was very borderline in terms of making the team. Um, and I went with Wally Backman, and I couldn't have an argument if someone wanted to say Felix Mion. And they've had some other good second basemen too. I mean, Doug Flynn was a very good, uh, again, a good fielding sure. second baseman who came over from the Reds. Yeah, um, in the Seaver trade. <laughs> well, right. So we lost Saver, but gained Doug Flynn. Uh, yeah. And it, he was part of the those 1980s teams, late 70s, early 80s, that um, you know weren't very good, but um, had some decent players on it. Dave Kingman, uh, Doug Flynn. You can go down the list. So if we if we head over to third base, obviously David Wright's at third base. Um, unfortunately, his injuries, you know, cut his career short. Or, but um, are his numbers Hall of Fame worthy because of the injury and he stopped short? Yeah. Or is it just not enough? Yeah, I don't think it's enough. I think, um, you know, it's and it's. The part of the sadness that goes along with the way David David Wright's career ended, uh, I think he's securely placed among Mets greats, uh, among maybe the top five greatest Mets ever. That's uh, that's never going to change, and that's that's again, like I said, that's secure. And you know, I look forward to when his number is retired, uh, probably next year. That's 
my prediction, I, you know, since we're having Jerry Kuzman's number retired, I figured they save it for next year. Um, but that's to me, you know, his Mets legacy, his his legacy as a, as an all time Met. Um, that's that is uh, secure and, and never going to be questioned. But as far as being a Hall of Famer, uh, he was certainly on a Hall of Fame trajectory up until about 2012. And uh, as we all know, it went downhill from there and injuries just got the better of him, really got the better of him. Uh, it was great that he could be a part of the uh, 2015 playoff run. Uh, got that home run in his first at bat back in Philadelphia. Uh, got the home run in game three of the World Series, which was one of his uh, best moments and one of the best moments in the history of City Field so far. Uh, but it's it's really too bad because it, w- it would have been great to see him uh, just kind of see how his career could play out and see you know where it could have stacked up in terms of all time great third baseman, not just not just all time Met third baseman because he's he's certainly number one. But uh, would have loved to see him make the Hall of Fame, but I unfortunately think that's not going to happen. Mm. And after that, again, you had a, you have some good players at third base, Ray Knight, Robin Ventura, I mean, Wayne Garrett, Ed Charles, mm-hmm. Hubie Brooks. Yeah. Um, how, how was your, how was the selection there? Was it a tough one for you? That was a, a tough one. And it's, uh, it includes one of my final choices uh, for the team. Uh, I put Howard Johnson, Howard uh, Johnson in there. Howard Johnson was not the greatest fielding third baseman, but it was a fantastic hitter. Uh, for th- he had three fantastic years, um, years that uh, some of his numbers are still tops all time in Mets history. Uh, 87 was his breakout year. Uh, 89 had a, had a fantastic year. And then 91 was his third 30-30 uh, season. And he led the league in home runs and RBIs. It, it gets a little overshadowed because he always did that in years in which the Mets underachieved of, you know, 91 especially, they really collapsed at the end of the season. Um, but it shouldn't be overlooked because it was it was so productive. Uh, so he deserved uh, to make the team at third base. And behind him, I put Robin Ventura. And that might be a little bit uh, controversial, but um, I thought he was not only – not only did he produce maybe the best hitting season by a third base in a Mets history in 1999, but he was a fantastic fielder, won a gold glove. Uh, his last – you know, only played three years. Had uh, His last two years were – injury plagued but he still you know fought through it and and played uh played decently uh but his fielding kind of put his uh wins above replacement very high uh in terms of of Mets third baseman so that kind of allowed that allowed me to kind of put him on the team not only because he could be the you know better fielder of the three um but he had a lot of big moments in 1999 we all remember the Grand Slam single, which the game was already a classic. He kind of just made a put an exclamation point on it. Uh, but for but he had a lot of great moments in leading the Mets uh, to that postseason berth in, in HNDI. And he had uh, some good moments as well in the World Series, the playoff run in 2000. Have you had a chance to hear from any uh, fans yet who have had uh, different opinions? So uh, in leading up to uh, the publication, I uh, like on Facebook and, and Twitter, I put on I put up like graphics that I created that said, hey, who's your uh, you know all time third baseman or left fielder or wh- whatever position you want to want to name. And and it's interesting to get some uh, the opinions of people um, because you know, like we talk about second pace and people are like, oh, what about Jeff Kent? Like I didn't even put him on the list, and I, of course, knew him as a you know watching him as a kid. I, I, I knew he was uh, had a had a decent career at the Mets, and of course, it it really accelerated when he went on to uh, the Giants and the Astros and the Dodgers. Uh, and I actually think he should get some consideration, more consideration for the Hall of Fame. Uh, but you know, his his career as a Met was was good, but not I don't think was was good enough to to put on the team. So it was interesting to see also like the kind of the people that were saying that you could, you know, I'm not saying I was judging people's ages, but you could tell like people who are maybe my age were like, Hey, what about Jeff Ken or Garo Alfonso? And then maybe older people uh, who, you know, maybe were children of the early eighties were saying, Oh, Doug Flynn was my favorite. So um, every, you know, everyone has a, a, an opinion and uh, that's the beauty of a book like this. Um, I'm not here to kind of say, here's the final, here are the final choices. And that's, Oh, that was something I, I made sure to uh, mention when I did Mets and Tens, that these lists were just one fan's opinion, uh, one very passionate fan's opinion. And I I do appreciate within, you know, respectfully a few people like, hey, I thought that person should have been on the team. Uh, and, oh, but, you know, I really like the book because, you know, if, if it 
if all your opinions or all of the choices that I had satisfied you, I think it would be a pretty boring book. Right. And it, it's, it's great. The book's great because it's going to open up conversations for, for mm-hmm. friends and, and family. And you all can just sit around, you know, have a beer, have a soda and, and talk about all these different players and, and some of the ones that aren't on the list. Um, you know, I probably just mentioned I have four different favorite players as we're talking. <laughs> Uh, you know, I played second base, so I like Doug Flynn. He was a favorite. Yeah. Edgardo Alfonso was a favorite. So mm-hmm. um, you, you, the list could probably change day day to day. And But stats always stay the same. So that's why uh, yeah. it's a great book, definitely. Uh, outfield. You. Outfield, you chose uh, Cleon Jones in left field, Carlos Beltran in center field, and Daryl Strawberry in right field. Mm-hmm. Um, with everything going on with Carlos Beltran, I mean, you can't you can't take his numbers away from him. Yeah. Was not my favorite player, but I mean yeah. his numbers. When you look at his numbers, they're 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 amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the best offensive players in Mets history. Uh, you know, all the other things that maybe you want to criticize him for uh, the 2006 MLCS strikeout. Um, you know, the, the the whole injury situation he had in 2009, where he like he opted to get surgery on his own. Um, a lot of fans also thought maybe he was not giving a full effort, but he was, that was just kind of him. He just glided to, to, to balls and he wasn't exactly kind of, he didn't give off the look that he was a hustler, but he was, you know, he, uh, he certainly gave a full effort in my opinion. Um, and also just what happened in, in the recent months with, uh, uh, the, uh, the sign stealing and then his, uh, quick removal as manager. I don't think those things, um, should affect how he was statistically and how how great he was as a Met. I mean, we we talked about 41 home runs in 2006. That 2006 season, uh, one of the best offensive seasons any Met has ever produced. Um, and you know, the Mets wouldn't have gotten to the NLCS without him. So I look at that strikeout, and I you know, even as a fan, shortly after that season happened, I never looked and said like, oh, you know, I can't stand Carlos Beltran, or it didn't shape my feelings toward him. So uh, I know some fans they'll never get over it. Um, it. You know, for me it was one of the most devastating losses of, of my life. But I don't like personally go and you know, want to like just hate on Carlos Beltran because of that. Um, so all the things that have happened uh, to me, you know, they certainly kind of they they will form they will allow for people to have their own opinions. To me, it doesn't affect it. I even think he's still a Hall of Famer. Uh, I'm disappointed that he was involved in the sign stealing. However, he may, however deep he may have been involved in it. Um, you know, story in the athletic said he was pretty much the kind of the ringleader of it. Um, I, I don't want to say I'm doubting that, but who knows if that was just people trying to throw him under the bus. So we'll see how, what comes from that. Um, but it's pretty clear that he had involvement in it. Um, do I think that affects his hall of fame chances? Uh, I don't think, it really does. Maybe it'll take him a few more years to get in uh, and it might put a little bit of tarnish on him, but um, we have no proof that it made him that he you know did it earlier in his career yet. I don't, I don't see, I have not heard of anything like that. So to me, I still think he gets into the hall of fame and frankly, I still think he gets in as a Met. Mm. All right. So you pick different players from different decades, really in the outfield. Um Daryl Strawberry in right field. I mean, that's where I grew up in the '80s with the Mets. Um, he, he was he was awesome. He came up with with Dwight Gooden. You know, um, some great teams. They didn't really uh, reach their full potential with the Mets. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your What was in your mind when you selected Daryl Strawberry in right field? That's- yeah, no. I mean, I thought that was a no brainer. Uh, most home runs uh, in Mets history, despite I know what what we may think, and and that his career was a little bit of a disappointment um, because his expectations were so high after being drafted number one in 1980 by the Mets. Uh, Everyone thought he was just going to be, you know, kind of like Ted Williams uh, where he would, you know, be a a surefire hall of famer. And although he made, I think seven all-star games, seven straight with the Mets uh, again, hit the most home runs in Mets history. It still feels like we, you know, we were shortchanged and he shortchanged himself in effect. Uh, it's great to see that he's kind of found, you know, whatever life he wants to live. It seems like he's found some uh, peace mm-hmm. and uh, he straightened his life out. And that's great. And, uh, you know, it's really good to see because I, you know, who you, we never thought that that was going to happen. Um, but yeah, his career still 
is just one that you just it's it's one of the greatest what if uh careers in baseball history and specifically with the Mets. Um because we all thought that maybe he was gonna be a you know possibly a career long Met and five hundred home run hitter. Um but in terms of Mets history and in terms of the greatest players in Mets history, he still stands among among the best maybe in the top five and left field cleon jones could you tell us about cleon jones for for maybe the people who don't know cleon jones yeah now cleon jones is probably the most important hitter of the first two decades of mets history i think uh as we were talking about with jerry grody if you look at jerry grody's hitting stats hey maybe it doesn't compare with other catchers of other eras if you look at cleon jones uh, and you look at maybe like his power numbers it doesn't line up or it doesn't you know, uh, compare favorably maybe, with, you know, with the Daryl Strawberry uh, or Carlos Beltran. But, uh, you know, back in the late 60s when pitching was so dominant, uh, specifically 68, the year of the pitcher, but 69, uh, there was still a lot of dominant pitching and hitting was was kind of, was a little more at a premium. Um, but, you know, he hit 340 that year, uh, was third in the league in batting average. And for a team in which runs were at a premium, uh, the Mets had fantastic pitching, but Runs were often hard to come by. Cleon Jones was the guy that you could count on the most. Uh, and he was so important to that, the success of that team, that offense, uh, in winning the World Series. So, you know, he had um, some down years, but 69 was so important. Um, had, you know, in 1971, he hit, you know, over 300. 1973 was injury plague, but he was so important and so clutch in September of that year. And that was the September in which the Mets went from last place to first place to win the national league East. Uh, and I believe he had six home runs in the final 10 games. Uh, so Cleon Jones, when he uh, left the Mets, uh, he retired shortly after he left the Mets. He went to the white Sox and pretty much was, was uh, re- retired and, and really didn't have the legs to continue um, was very high up on, on a lot of hitting uh, statistics in Mets history. So very, very vital to the success of the Mets, specifically in 69. And right behind those, those three, you had um, some interesting choices. Could you talk about those? Yeah. So uh, left field, the, the backup in left field is where I got a little creative. Um, I had uh, d- debated internally between Kevin McReynolds and Michael Conforto. And the reason I had Michael Conforto as a possible left fielder is because he's still to this day has played more games there. Uh, and even if, even through this year, if you were to play 150 games right field, he still have more games in left field. Um, I believe so. I think that's it's something we're close to that, but I, I, I put him in, in left field. Um, and I, and I actually went with Conforto over McReynolds because the two are so evenly matched uh, in terms of uh, OPS plus actually Conforto is a little bit higher uh, home runs McReynolds is a little higher, but Conforto is on the verge of passing him. And in fact, I believe he's the second fastest Met to reach 100 home runs. Uh, so say what you will about his inconsistency, and I will uh, agree to that. I think he kind of be, you know, great one day and, and terrible the next. Um, but overall, if you look at his his season-long stats, he's, he's, he's been pretty consistent. And last year, he produced his best year by far. Um, I went with him a little bit forward thinking, um, you know, maybe it's dangerous to do that, but because they were so close uh, and because, you know, to be transparent, I kind of wanted this book to kind of be relevant in June or July when hopefully Conforto uh, has had a successful first half of the 2020 season. Uh, I went with him there. Uh, as far as other outfield positions, um, right field uh, had Rusty Staub. That was also part of the reason why Conforto moved to left field because I wanted to have as Rusty Staub, I figured it was a pretty solid choice uh, for what he did for the uh, teams in you know, 72, 73, uh, 75 when he was traded and then came back and was specifically a pinch hitter and a great pinch hitter, uh, led the league in, in pinch hits and pinch hit RBIs. Uh, so he he was the backup in right field. Uh, and then center field, I had uh, two backups. Uh, I couldn't have a team without uh, Mookie Wilson, uh, who is one of, you know, many fans' favorite players and one of my favorite players, uh, just in the the great uh, the attitude and spirit that he brought to the team. Not to mention the you know how how uh, quick he was and uh, held all you know the stolen base and triples records before Jose Reyes. Uh, and then also in addition to Mookie, I had Tommy Agee. Uh, we talked about Cleon Jones, how important he was to the offense of '69. Uh, if if 
Cleon Jones is the most important offensive player. Tommy, J- Tommy AG is the second most important, probably. Um, he had a great year at the, with the bat, but also the, his fielding was uh, sensational and never more so than in game three of the World Series with those two great catches. And as there, and everyone might forget, he hit the leadoff home run in the bottom of the first of that game. So he saved five runs. He produced one run, and the Mets won 5 nothing in that game. So I uh, made sure to include Tommy Agee because not only did he have a very good Mets career, but he had probably the greatest fielding performance uh, by any player in World Series history. And I was so psyched last night I was reading the book. <clears throat> you mentioned my two um, two of my favorite players, better favorite players who, you know, not a lot of people mention uh, as far as the greatest outfielders is Kevin McReynolds and Lee Mazzilli for honorable mention. Mm-hmm. Um could you tell me about those two? He just mentioned Kevin McReynolds. He was a he was a very good fielder in the outfield, yeah. and we talked yeah. about him coming over in that trade. That might have been the um, the downfall of his perception from the fans. Yeah, so a, a good thing that you pointed out his fielding because Kevin McReynolds was a very underrated fielder. I believe he might have led the league in assists. Uh, was an underrated stolen uh, you know base stealer. Uh, I think he stole twenty one bases without getting caught, or maybe he, he stole. All the bases he stole in 88, he did not get caught, but was a very good player. Um, again, you know, certainly worthy of being on the team, but, you know, with a 30-man roster, he just kind of just missed uh, and was third in the MVP vote in 88. Uh, but the trade, he came over in a trade uh, in 1987 or before the 87 season uh, that sent Kevin Mitchell to San Diego. McReynolds had been with the Padres, uh, but came over to the Mets. A lot of people perceive that myself included that that uh, was that chipped away at the attitude of the 62 Mets, 62, the 86 Mets, um, because the, the, you know, the, the rest of the league was a little bit fearful or, you know, kind of disdain the Mets because they just had this, uh, you know, that this bravado um, that helped them win the world championship. Uh, and a guy like Kevin Mitchell personified that bravado, uh, even though he wasn't a starter, he was just kind of that, that guy that brought a certain attitude along with Ray Knight, who also they got rid of in the 86 off season. So those, those, the moves to get rid of Ray Knight and to trade Kevin Mitchell, uh, you know, kind of, as I said, chipped away at that attitude. And unfortunately Kevin McReynolds, uh, because his attitude was just kind of a little more laissez-faire. Sometimes you didn't know if you like really wanted to be at the stadium uh, it kind of was, he kind of was an easy target for fans. And I think that happened like late in his career uh, with the Mets is that kind of his, uh, the attitude that might be perceived as lackadaisical uh, kind of uh, was to his detriment. All right. Now I have to jump back because my daughter will kill me if I don't <laughs> mention her favorite player. And I skipped over shortstop is Jose Reyes was uh, your selection at shortstop. Um, difficult choice. Uh, no, yeah, no, not at all. I mean, second, he has the second most hits in Mets history and, and probably the most exciting player the Mets have ever had. Um, you know, I, he's maybe not on the same level as a strawberry or good in terms of not fulfilling uh, their full potential um, because, you know, Jose Reyes is the only batting champion the Mets have ever had. Uh, but, you know, he, he, he came up a little bit short in terms of what he thought of him. Some of that was injuries, but um, 2005, six, seven, and eight were uh, really fantastic. And then 2011 is when he won the batting championship. Um, so, you know, to, to, to say he was not worthy of, 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 a, of a spot on the team uh, would be really misguided. So uh, made sure to put him as the starter. Um, you know, I think it was a little bit wrong to bring him back in 2016 <laughs> because he was not only a shell of his former self, but he was coming off of the domestic uh, abuse uh, charge. Um, and, did, did, yeah, go ahead. Did that hurt his 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 uh, any fanfare of him uh, not being on the Mets anymore at that same time that he was with David Wright? I mean, David Wright was being celebrated, and yeah, um, everybody loves him, and it was kind of you know Jose Reyes is over here, same situation minus the injury. He's not going to be around anymore, and it was just see you later. Yeah, no, I mean. Um... I, I think I think he endeared. It uh, was he was. Um, I mean, he got great fan support while he was there. I think the fact that he left in free agency, but that really wasn't his fault. I mean, the Mets really didn't pursue him in free agency. I think a lot of people wanted to resign him, 
Um, and, you know, it was in his right to kind of look at other offers. And when the Mets kind of said, oh, we, you know, surprise, surprise, they weren't going to spend a lot of money. He went on to to Miami. So uh, I don't think that hurt his his fan reputation at all, at least for me. Uh, the whole domestic uh, violence thing kind of did it for me. Um, you know, I, it, so it, yeah, his reputation was slightly tarnished in there and I'm not the only one that didn't feel that I'm not the only one that felt that he probably was not right for the Mets to take on in 2016. Uh, it's, it's, it, I don't, you know, to me, he didn't have that much of an impact um, in that year. And then the, the two years after that. Um, so I think he, if he didn't uh, come back to the Mets, he still would have made, you know, the all-time team just because <laughs> those three years really didn't were not uh, anything to write home about. Right, and right behind him, you had uh, Buddy Harrelson, who's you know beloved. Um, what do you think about him? Yeah, in the same vein of Jerry Grody, uh, where defense was his specialty, uh, that was Bud Harrelson, and I made sure to uh, include and put emphasis on his defensive stats because again, he was a guy who would hit eighth, and you know, every once in a while, would get a hit. But for the most part, um, he was in the lineup because of his fielding. And if you hear from uh, anyone from the, the, the 69 or the, the 73 or, or the teams of Bud Harrelson's era, they will talk about how important he was. Uh, he was the glue of the defense. And, you know, for the teams of 69 and 73 or the, the, uh, around that time, um, defense was so important to the Mets' success because they were pitching-centered. They were, you know, run prevention-centered. And Bud Harrelson was in the middle and was the the, co- the main cog in in making sure that they kept runs off the board. Uh, in addition to Jerry Grody, but as far as being in the infield, it was it was uh, Bud Harrelson. And and I made sure to put some kind of uh, sabermetric friendly stats uh, to show that he how important he was. Uh, in addition to mentioning uh, his Gold Glove, his All Star appearances. And you also I'm yeah, glad to see you mentioned Ray Ordonez as as an honorable mention. Ray Ordonez who people don't know uh, was just an amazing fielder. I mean, uh, when he came up and I, I can still see a play yeah. that he made in left field on a cutoff throw yeah. coming home. Could you talk yeah. about him a little bit? Yeah, no, he was, uh, he was compared when he came out. I remember when he was, when he came up, he was compared to Ozzy Smith. Uh, <laughs> and that first game you were talking about, I remember that was opening day, 96. It was against the Cardinals, actually Ozzy Smith's last year. And he made this, play he was uh taking a throw he was like the cutoff man taking a throw from left field and you know as the cutoff man then threw home from his knees and got uh i think it was royce clayton coming home and that helped the mets win uh, on opening day 1996 uh but he made some spectacular plays and he was not just um he not just excelled with the spectacular play but he also made just the routine plays um, i know he set a record for most consecutive perilous games uh, I'm, not, I'm trying to remember what year that was, but it was, uh, he certainly did that in 99 or 2000. Um, and, you know, he, he, he was what I kind of, in a sense, what we thought he was going to be a great fielder, not a great hitter, um, almost kind of uh, a guy who, who <laughs> hurt the Mets offensively. Uh, but kind of like Bud Harrelson was, was superior with the glove. Uh, we all remember that, uh, that infield in 1999, uh, the sports illustrated cover uh, considered the greatest infield ever. And he was, um, certainly a uh, key to, to making sure that was possible. And last but not least, uh, the manager and the, the front office. Could you talk about your choices there? Yeah. So manager is one probably uh, that I don't say controversial, but uh, is probably one that wouldn't people wouldn't do. But I think uh, I was in another podcast uh, interview and <laughs> I, I, I said, I probably will get a lot of respect from the older fans. Uh, I put Gil Hodges as the manager over Davey Johnson. Um, with all due respect to Davey Johnson, I mean that, you know, most wins in Mets history. And if, you know, Davey Johnson was managing in to managing with the Mets today, you know, the Mets would have made the playoffs pretty much every year he was there. Um, but I, I look like in a, in the sense of, you know, how we talked about Tom Seaver and how impactful he was when compared to Jacob deGrom uh, and the attitude change that uh, Tom Seaver had in changing the perception of the Mets uh, Gil Hodges did that from a managerial perspective and probably to a greater effect than Tom Seaver did. Um, I, he may be a more important figure in uh, changing that attitude. And to me, uh, there isn't a more important uh, person to the 16, the success of the 69 Mets uh, than Gil Hodges. And I don't think 
in in you know with the 86 team uh i you know great great talent davy johnson obviously has to get a lot of credit for it but i couldn't see another manager doing what gil hodges did with the 69 mets and mm-hmm. so that is what puts him in that spot as the all-time Mets manager nice that's a good choice and how about um general manager yeah gm uh i went with and we, we were just talking about the 86 mets the guy who built yep. the 86 mets was frank cashin um, a lot of people will criticize um, the fact that, you know, as we talked about with the Kevin McReynolds trade, the Kevin Mitchell trade, Kevin McReynolds for Kevin Mitchell, I should say, the Ray Knight, um, you know, letting him go. And uh, there were some other trades later on in that decade. Frank Cashin did build the team to a championship level and, and of course, winning the championship in 86 from pretty much the ground floor. I mean, the team uh, before he came on in 1980 was was pretty decrepit. Uh, they had no, they had no uh, uh, minor league talent to speak of, um, and then it started, you know, by getting Daryl Strawberry with the number one pick. Then you know, drafting Dwight Gooden in '82, uh, they made a trade for Ron Darling. Cashin was the person who, you know, orchestrated those deals and those trades, uh, free agent signings that made the Mets into that perennial contender. So I couldn't see going with anyone else but Cashin. And a uh, hot topic right now is the ownership of the Mets. Uh, <laughs> we could probably talk about that another time. Yes. Uh, but, but who did you pick for, for an owner? Yeah, I mean, I did not pick our current owner. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I um, again, when talking about the history of the Mets and talking about kind of uh, shaping the character of the Mets, uh, their first owner was Joan Payson, uh, the first woman to buy a organization with her own money without inheriting it. Um, she was a stakeholder uh, in the New York Giants and actually was uh, had a dissenting vote in them moving to San Francisco. And she was very interested in, in um, uh, getting a team. She uh, came from a wealthy family so she could uh, buy it with her own money uh, and wasn't exactly a hands-on owner, but she was um, kind of, you know, uh, important in kind of creating that welcoming atmosphere, uh, not only for players, because players just, you know, adored her, uh, but also creating a kind of family environment where fans could kind of relate to her in a sense, even though they couldn't relate to her, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, her, her bank account, they could relate her in the fact that she was a rabid fan and she cared um, if, as much, if not more than, than the fans did. So, um, that was a big influence. And of course, I'm, one of my favorite stories is that 69, um, she had planned this trip in like September to go to Europe. And she, like everyone else, figured, okay, in September, my team won't be in contention because they hadn't been in contention uh, in their first, you know, in their, since 62. Um, and of course, the Mets, cont- Mets start winning in you know the summer and they become a, a contender in the NL East. And, um, she decides to go on the trip because she doesn't want to jinx the team, which I think anyone who has any bit of superstition in their, in their bones would do the same thing. So he was really one of us, notwithstanding the, the fact that he had a, you know, a deep bank, some deep pockets. Are you concerned with the, the, the state, the status of the uh, sale of the Mets? Um, I think it will all work out. Um, I, you know, I've never, <laughs> I've never been in any kind of deep negotiations or serious negotiations when it comes to money. My feeling is that whatever is going on in terms of Steve Cohen backing out might ha- might be some kind of a, a negotiating ploy. Um, but I, you know, I can't, I don't know. I, I have no experience <laughs> on this whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I feel eventually it will work out. And from what we're hearing, um, that we're hearing, I mean, from what we're hearing, it seems like the Wilpons uh, and, and those associated with the Wilpons in the ownership uh, are kind of are willing to give a little bit more. And um, that should allow for a sale uh, in the next few months, I'm sure. Well, again, this is Brian Wright. He's the author of the New York Mets All Time All Stars. Trust me, I read the book myself. Uh, anybody who loves baseball uh, or, or the Mets, uh, you should definitely go out and get this book. It's available on Amazon right now. I know that's where I went, um, paperback or digital. Um, anything else you want to add, Brian? Where can we find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter uh, at BrianWright86. 
Uh, you can, uh, we'll post, uh, you know, excerpts from the book, uh, you know, uh, critical acclaim from the book. I was really happy to get uh, some blurbs uh, from Tom Verducci uh, from former Mets like Howard Johnson and John Matlack. Um, so that's, so you'll see some of that. Uh, I'll post, you know, just kind of uh, random Mets stuff. If something happened on a particular day uh, or just my general thoughts about the Mets. Uh, but if you're interested in a signed copy, uh, feel free to direct message me and I'll be I'll be happy to get back to you and be happy to sign a book and send it your way. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you coming on with me. It was great. Absolutely. Yeah, it was great, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me on. No problem. This is our year, Ryan. <laughs> this is and it. I say that every year. I feel a little bit better this year. Um, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Uh, you know, um, I'm, I'm living here in Washington, D.C. I had to go through watching the Nationals win the World Series, and uh, I had to kind of go on uh, radio silence in terms of social media because I couldn't stand seeing my friends celebrate. Uh, and I also couldn't stand some of my friends uh, who probably couldn't name three Nationals players uh, talking about how great it was for, you know, us to win. And uh, I, I equate that to jumping into the marathon at mile 26, Uh like for someone like me who spent my whole life wanting to see my team win a World Series and for them to just be celebrating, I know it doesn't mean as much to them as it would have been would have been for the Mets to win for me. Um, it's it's hard to take. So um, it, a Mets World Championship, whether it's this year or soon, would 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 uh, would alleviate that uh, that feeling of last year. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, Brian. Thanks so Good much for everything. I appreciate, I appreciate it. it. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you're looking for social media content for your contracting business, painting contractors, carpenters, electricians, any type of contractor, please check us out on Instagram at Amato Media or check us out on LinkedIn. We can definitely help you all out. So have a great day.